Hi, you're listening to Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit podcast, a podcast in which we discuss a league of their own. I'm Karen, and here with me is Emma. Now, Emma, we start every episode with a two-minute recap of the episode that we're going to discuss today. It's going to be hard. It's going to be fast. You've got the recap today. Two minutes. I'm timing you. Go. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Karen. So in episode two, we see that the Peaches are about to play their first game, but they've barely practiced. Enter their new coach, a gruff retired Major League Baseball pitcher who promises to get them into fighting shape. But the league owners are still more focused on making the Peaches look pretty and womanly rather than turning them into an ace team. Meanwhile, Max is determined to play ball. She hatches a creative plan to get hired at the local screw factory and pitch for their team. But first, she makes sure that Clance's housewarming party goes on without a hitch. Clance promised her in-laws she'd serve crabs. Max will stop at nothing to make sure Clance gets her perfect big day. So that's my summary. I think it was under two minutes, Karen. That was well under two minutes. You (laughs) nailed it, Emma. You got it. Thank you. So before we get into discussing the episode, I have to ask, what are you wearing? You have to explain it. The listeners can't see you. Well, Emma... I am in my Rockford Peaches Halloween costume, and I've got to say, I look so good right now. You look very cute. You really do. I do. I'm just going to throw that out there. I look amazing. I got this off the internet. For anyone that's looking, there's a lot of domestic suppliers. This one comes from Ticker Lama, which is Chinese, and they obviously are hand sewing all of their costumes. Plug for them, because honestly, they're fantastic costumes, and they're also cheaper than what was on Amazon and stuff in the States. So just so viewers know what I'm wearing, because they can't see it, this is actually the original A League of Their Own costume. And we know this because the pink, which is the way jersey, is a bit pinker. And the hat is the original movie hat. Yeah, I was going to say that the logo looks a bit different than the show. It is. But everything else is accurate to what we saw on the show. And you know, Emma, I got to say, when in episode two, they complain about how short the skirts are and how could anyone possibly play Yeah, I'm with them. Honestly, this might accentuate my feminine features, but I don't (laughs) want to play any sports in it. Well, it looks good for Halloween. Maybe not so much for playing baseball, but that is a really good tie into the first topic we're going to discuss today, which is a theme on this week's episode, femininity. So what were some of your thoughts about that in this episode? For me, this is very much the theme of the episode. It is an overmastering idea that just gets played in so many different ways. For example, we see that Tony owns this hair salon that Max is in. We have all of these ideas of female beauty that are associated with the hair salon. We have the idea of female sports players and this idea that it's not very feminine to play sports and therefore They have to wear red lipstick and they have to wear dresses and they have to be feminized in a traditional way. And we have this montage of that. It's so weird, I think, today because there is much more of a balance in modern times of like you can be sporty and you can be also feminine or girly if that's how you choose to be. But you're right. Back in this episode, we see how it's really seen as one or the other and you're not going to be able to do both. I think the show plays with the idea of what is femininity, what makes you a woman? Is it having curled hair? Is it the lipstick? Because we see throughout the course of the show, women in all sorts of presentations. We have Jess on the more masculine, if you will, side of the spectrum. And then you have Greta, who represents the really feminine side of the spectrum. 
But for us as women, as viewers, we're like, these are all females. These are all women within a spectrum that represents femininity. But this is held up against the idea that men have come up with of what is female beauty. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right that the male gaze is so strong. It's not just what makes a woman, what makes someone embody a woman or femininity. It's what is the overarching male gaze see as feminine, which in this time was, as you mentioned, the red lips, the curled hair, the dresses and accentuating the figure and stuff like that. And they're things that we still deal with today. I think that's kind of the pity of it, isn't it? When Vivian, who is this makeup magnate, opens the newspaper and the headline is female baseball, the death of femininity. We have this this idea that's transcended just centuries or millennia of, oh, well, women are becoming less womanly and they're going to leave the house and they're not going to take care of their menfolk anymore. So as women, we accept a broader spectrum of presentations of what being a woman is than men, which is very limited. And I hate to say that, but it persists even today. I was having a conversation with someone about the dad bod. And I hate this term, the dad bod, (laughs) because we forgive men for being out of shape. And we say, oh, you're probably too busy with the kids. But there's no equivalent of the mom bod. No one's like, man, that Victoria's Secret model's got a mom bod. I'm loving it. We still hold women to these particular ideals. But I will say, though, that these ideals do change in time. Now we want kind of emaciated and thin, whereas before Rubenesque was what you were going for. The pendulum always swings for women. The thing that makes women attractive at one time is, yeah, being very voluptuous. And another time it's being very slim. I mean, there are some things that persist particularly related to colorism and I'd say proximity to whiteness, but you see it go back and forth. Whereas for men, it is more standard of a handsome man 70 years ago in the movies is probably pretty similar to a handsome man today in the movies in terms of the concept of quote unquote masculinity and the masculine ideal. Right. So something that I do also like in this episode Remember the scene when the women get the dresses for their uniforms? And it's not just the queer women on the team who are horrified by the concept of dresses. It's everyone on the team. And again, this isn't about sexual orientation or anything like this. It's this idea of women just seeing the world differently and being like, what do you mean I have to slide or hold a catcher's position in a dress? This is ridiculous. Later in the episode, I do think it's also interesting. We do see a lot more pants. You talked last episode about pants. I just looked up again because I thought, my God, this episode, everyone is in pants so much. And actually, I do think they wear pants a little too often in this. And the pants style isn't quite right. That's not a knock against the costume designer. But again, when you have these women that are coming into this situation that maybe have a little bit more flexibility in what they're wearing and sticking them in these dresses and saying, well, now Mm -hmm. you must be feminine. And they're saying, what do you mean? What like, (laughs) what is feminine? And I think that is, again, to be redundant on this, but that is what this episode challenges us to think is what is feminine? Yeah. You know, one thing I want to add, because you've played team sports forever, and I'm not a big team sports person, but I'm really into dancing. You know, I used to break dance for a couple of years. I did capoeira and other things. And the thought of break dancing, I mean, there aren't that many B-girls compared to B-boys, but the thought of breakdancing in a dress or a skirt, even an outfit like that, 
it got me thinking it's so ridiculous because you just you do, you can't have the full range of movement certainly as you see when they're out there playing ball in the show they're sliding they're getting cut up it goes back to what the overlords <laughs> wanted in the show which is having a team that will look good for the newspapers and this actually relates to one of the scenes that i thought was the most telling in the episode about femininity about Greta. Now, you know, I feel weird admitting this, but frankly, you might be shocked, but the first episode, I didn't really care for Greta. I just felt like she was this sort of manic pixie dream girl, the sort of girl who you either want to be her or you want to be with her. She's kind of a stereotype. She's a stereotype mm -hmm. of the 1940s pinup in a way. I mean, she's gorgeous. She's perfect and looks flawless, right? But during my rewatch, I realized that her attempts at being this dream girl were the point. She's putting on a front for everyone around her. And I thought one of the best examples of this was seeing her playing at the game. And she starts to reveal how her resolve is cracking and how she is playing this game of moving through society as a queer femme woman who wants to play by her own rules. So there was the scene, she's being heckled. And so she tries to keep her cool during that, but it's, you can tell it's really tough and she starts to lose her cool. And then after that, she's told by the owner of the cosmetics company, you're doing too much. That meaning that she's being a little too flirty, a little too suggestive and flashy. And I think that's a reality for women that persists to this day, that we're told to be presentable for the male gaze put on the makeup and the short skirt and everything but don't be too eager don't be too flirty because oh you're inviting someone heckling you and seeing how much that affected Greta I thought was really well done you know I had a slightly different interpretation because I thought what Vivian was telling her was don't talk back to the men but I think the conversation about Greta is also really interesting because We don't know what Greta would wear, what she would be like if she wasn't wearing this mask. For Greta, putting on makeup is like putting on a mask, it's war paint, it's something that protects her from the world. She has this idea that if she ever slips up, everyone will see her queerness. Now, we don't think that she's super butch, but I do think it's questionable if she lived in 2020, what would she wear? When we think about this idea of how queer women present, we know that, of course, it's a big spectrum. So she could be high femme, or she could be chapstick, who's acting high femme in order to protect herself. So for me, that's always been a really interesting question. But I do love that for her, femininity is a defense, it's a shield. And so when the women go through their montage of being made over, she turns to Carson and says, that they're doing it so you don't look like a bunch of queers. And we know this is a projection because, in fact, it's not that they're trying to make them look straight. They're just trying to make them look attractive to the male gaze. Mm-hmm. That's interesting what you said about feeling like Vivian was saying to her, don't talk back as much. Because I think in that scene that you just brought up with the montage, we see Greta basically telling everybody, like, you got to suck up. You got to suck up. You got to play by their rules in this instance. And again, like you said, keeping on the mask that she has so that she's able to sort of slip away in these other corners and do what she wants to do in her life. But, you know, it's a very different 
idea when we get to the display of womanhood for Clance, for Max, and for other Black women who are in the show, which is something really important that I think we should talk about. Absolutely. Probably my favorite part of this episode is Clance's storyline and this idea of what womanhood means to her. She has this idea of once you're married, you have to establish your household. You have to impress the in-laws. You have to have good hair. You have to have a nice dress. You have to cook the perfect meal. So her idea of womanhood is very different from, for example, Carson, who when she's talking on the phone with her sister, her sister says, you've abandoned your home. You haven't had kids in seven years. You're a terrible woman. Yeah, I think it also speaks to the different societal issues that Max, Clance, and their community are facing. Something I just wanted to briefly bring up would be we see more women in their society, you know, in their slice of society who are working, particularly Tony, Max's mom. So those are great points about Clance and all the things that she is dealing with and her image and sense of womanhood. And then on top of it, something that we see explored later in the series, but gets explored a little bit in this episode with Tony, is the idea that for many Black women in this period, they were also working. They may have also been a breadwinner or a co-breadwinner in their household. Something that the show doesn't talk about explicitly, but was the case particularly at this time, was that it was more likely that white women who got married would stop working, middle-class white women. Whereas Black women would be more likely to continue working, stay in the workforce, in large part as a reflection of the wage disparities between Black and white workers. You know, we don't know how much people are making at the screw factory, but I would be not surprised at all if the white workers are earning more than their Black counterparts. We also see in this episode how proud Tony is that she's a business owner how she tells Max that that's the way that Max can get ahead. And so I think Tony is somewhat of a role model for someone like Clance of having a marriage, having a family, and also having a business and being able to have that sort of independence and contribute to your household. That's a lot on someone's shoulders. Tony definitely has it all. And I think you actually bring up a good point when you talk about the Black women on the show have jobs. Where do these white women work? Your Carsons, your Gretas, your Joes. Like, yeah, we could understand if Carson didn't work, again, a married woman. But what was Greta doing? What was Joe doing? What was Lupe doing? What was Jess doing? Yeah. They just show up out of nowhere and they don't need to be working. Again, they are being paid to be on the baseball team. But what did they give up? I wonder if we'll see some of that in season two. Yeah, especially with Greta and Joe, because it's clear that they've been traveling together for a long time. What we don't know is exactly what you said. There's so much about their relationship, including what have they been doing this whole time? How do they manage to make it when they go places? And yeah, I agree. It's a big question mark. And there are some other things like that where when you stop and think about it, you're like, hmm, I'm just not sure how. I wish I knew more of the backstory of how they got there. Something I wanted to talk about kind of going back to Max Clance and Tony would be this episode and how it portrays racism. When I was re-watching the show, I noticed that Max facing racism is always so blatant. Obviously, this reflects real things that happen, but I think there was a little bit of a missed opportunity to show more nuance because 
what's often so insidious about racism, as well as homophobia, other forms of discrimination and prejudice, is that there's plausible deniability, that it's microaggressions, that it's small things that chip away at someone's sense of self and someone's dignity. In this episode, for example, Max goes to apply for a job at the factory with these white women who I believe are secretaries. Is that right? I don't know. Their role is never actually explained, but it would make sense. I think they could have portrayed it as Max hands in her application and the white women smile at her and say, of course, we're going to consider you and then throw it right in the garbage or put it at the bottom of the pile and put some sort of mark on it to make it clear we're putting these other white candidates ahead of this black woman. When Max is at the store trying to buy the crabs, he could have said that he was sold out, but then meanwhile, he's selling them to other customers. And there's sort of that sense of, well, why aren't you selling to me? And it's very clear why, but it's not in the same explicit way. And I say this because the show isn't just a historical portrayal of the 1940s at which time there would have been signs saying, don't apply, don't come here. It would have been very obvious. But the show has messages crafted for modern audiences, as we discussed. It's not exclusively a period piece. And that's kind of why I think they could have showed that racism is often something that's more veiled, but it's extremely harmful to this day. And help white viewers especially understand that it's not just a blunt object. It can be the churn of those indignities that I'm sure that Max, Clance, Tony have experienced many, many times in their lives, unfortunately. It's actually a really good point and an interesting question. To what extent was racism overt or covert in Illinois at that time? And the reason I ask that, my girlfriend comes from North Carolina, and even when she was growing up in the 80s, And even into the 90s, they had a segregated pool. It just blows my mind. They had a whites-only pool and everyone in town knew. Really? Yeah, North Carolina, man. So racist. I was actually born outside of Chicago, so kind of in the same area of Rockford. Mm -hmm, Yeah. I grew up in Minnesota. All of the settlements there originally was Scandinavians or Germans. It's a different culture than what moved in to other places. I believe that racism was still quite common in the 1940s, but you also, to my understanding, had a big influx of African-Americans into the Chicago area in the 1900s. So I do wonder, but don't want to project any sort of ideas, how overt that racism would have been in the 1940s. But I like your idea of this show being not only historical, but also something to talk to modern viewers. And I think having these microaggressions is extremely important to remind people that really it's not just someone refusing to sell you crabs or acknowledge your existence. You know, or someone refusing to sell you the wedding cake for your gay marriage or someone calling you an ethnic slur. Right. I think in that case, there is an entire history where parts of the U.S. experienced racism differently. And this isn't a historical podcast. You and I aren't delving deeply into the history of racism in Illinois. But for people that are interested in issues like that, it would be a really good question as to how overt racism was at that time. But tiny plug for that part of the world, by the way, I noticed when we see the storefronts, Mm -hmm. that is what parts of Wisconsin and Illinois still look like today. Really? When they showed that scene, I went, oh my God, did they film that in Delavan, Wisconsin? Wait, is that really a, like a place that you grew up? 
<laughs> it's about 20 minutes away from one of the places I live. But that architecture still exists. And I actually thought that architecture was from the 70s and it might still be. But my point is, you can drive through parts of the Midwest and feel like you are in a league of their own. Wow. It was it like a small town with a main street and stuff like that. Yes, that is exactly what that looks like. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. You know, this brings up something I wanted to talk about, which was we're not a history podcast, but just discussing a little bit of historical context because they do mention it. They drop things in the show that help you understand where you are. But I wanted to talk about it a little more explicitly, especially for listeners who aren't really familiar with this time period, which is now 80 plus years ago. In the early and mid-1940s, there was this huge swell of patriotism that we see sort of casting a shadow on everything in the show, with the men going off to war, with the need to have women trying to build the, the spirit at home, rationing, other things like that. It's an interesting time because it really is the beginning of pretty massive societal changes the United States will leave World War II as a global superpower for the first time. Something that they mention in this episode is the rationing. Shirley mentions at the market when she's buying tuna that she has her ration card. People were changing their consumption habits because of limits, because of rations. That's on food, that's on textiles, that's on household staples. And these are also people who just lived through the Great Depression in the 1930s. Something about the Clance storyline is that supply chains were different at that time and shopping habits were different. We see it's a huge deal for Clance to have ordered a new dress and to get the crabs. You can't just go online and order it and have it at your house two days from now. Even though it isn't that long ago, I feel like those things make it seem like such a long time ago. And for anyone, by the way, who likes World War II stuff, Bomb Girls, which I think might still be on Netflix and does have a lesbian character, gets into that same idea of women working in the factory during World War II and what it was like to be in that environment. Yeah, as we discussed a little bit, women going into the workforce, particularly middle class white women, would have stopped working when they got married. And speaking of which, okay, do you have any idea the average age that women were getting married at this time? What do you think? I have no idea. It was around 20 to 22 years old in the United States, whereas today that number is closer to 28 for a woman. So think about you're basically finishing school, probably not getting further education. We don't even know for somebody like Carson what her there's the joke about her being from the farm, but like we don't even know what her town is like, what the schools are like, etc. I mean, a lot of stuff probably was preparing her to just get married and start a family. This is such a pressing issue to me. Does she come from a mining town? Like, <laughs> there's only so many industries that exist in the United States at this time. So if she wasn't coming from a farming region, but she wasn't coming from a major city, what, Carson, what was your family doing? Well, how, how do you think she got scouted out there? Okay, here's one thing that I do think I wish the show had done better. Because if Carson is from some basically small town, yes, how did she get scouted? How did Lupe get scouted? How did Jess get scouted in Canada? Were there regional tryouts? Like maybe Carson went to Seattle or Portland and got scouted? No one was just riding the rails looking for women in fields throwing baseballs. Yeah, <laughs> that is very true. I mean, that would have made a great show, the scouting part. Oh my God, it's a prequel. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. Hopefully sometime they'll do that of make a prequel. That's the scouting years. And I'd also like to know, were there other women's baseball teams? Because again... Yeah, were they playing on a team before? Yeah, how do you learn to play on a team if there aren't women's teams? You know how to throw a ball, and you know how to catch a ball, and you know how to hit a ball with a bat. But is that all you need to know? Yeah, as you mentioned, like as somebody who plays team sports, do you think you could just have practiced one of your sports, say hockey? slapping a puck and then shown up and played with a team and been cohesive Emma, that's that's actually like the theme of a bunch of 90s sports movies including <laughs> air Bud, a movie in which a golden retriever successfully plays basketball we should have had air Bud drop into this show that would have been a cool crossover right air Bud meets what's the peach's mascot is a peach <laughs> should have been air Bud. they could have air Bud. that was a real missed opportunity I don't think right. I've seen it since whenever it came out. Airbud then went on to play other sports too. Really? But I think we're digressing. Yeah, I agree. So going back to the idea of women, something else that I think we should give a little bit of time to, but just a little bit, the role of men and the, the limited role of men that we see in the show. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed throughout the show is the men are not particularly remarkable. We have a few that play recurring roles. We see Max's dad, we see Gary, we see Gus, and we see Dove, but they don't really stick. I mean, how many people can even remember Max's dad's name? And Gary only because Max keeps saying his name. I think that's sometimes intentional and sometimes not. In an interview, Abby Jacobson talks about creating the Dove character with the intention that he doesn't steal the show. We as viewers see him, but we don't particularly attach to him. He's in, he's out, the storyline moves on. This is meant to be a female-centric show, and it is. All the storylines are about women, and the few times men really do show up, they're just there to support the woman's story. Dove, though, I have to say he got under my skin so much, and which I think is a good thing in terms of the casting and the acting and the writing of the show, because he just, oh, he really irritated me. Seeing his arc of coming in and saying, I'm going to help you ladies out or whatever, and then finding out that he was paying the heckler to heckle Greta because Dove just cares about advancing and reigniting his own career, doesn't really care about the peaches. It got under my skin so much because it reminded me of, frankly, professional situations that I've been in. Obviously not as a ball player, but I've had managers in office settings who were more concerned about their own ability to get ahead and to make themselves look good, particularly men, rather than helping their staff. And I've seen many instances in which Men on a team will do whatever they need to do that they think is going to advance their own career. And it doesn't matter how many women they step on. It doesn't matter if they take what should be a woman's opportunity to shine. So I felt like they really captured that aging person who is past his prime, but he's doing whatever he needs to do to try to get back to his glory. You know, he didn't bother me as much, maybe because I've had a lot of male coaches There's definitely a difference in how men and women coach. Men are less emotion-based. They're less (laughs) touchy-feely. When he talks about the fire in his players' eyes, I thought that was funny because I've seen that on some sports teams. I've absolutely seen that done and encouraged with the female players. 
So I don't know. He didn't bother me as much. I did think it was interesting. We talked last episode about parallelism between the Max and Carson storylines. And this was another example. We see Max approach the coach of the Screw Factory team, and she does it all wrong. Times like this are when I get really frustrated with Max because she's so immature and she lacks tact and she just doesn't approach things in a way that's going to be helpful to herself. She tends to undermine herself. But, you know, she's like, you need me. I'm great. And then we see Carson approach the coach and she's kind of tongue-tied. She's shy. It's difficult for her to talk to him. Again, we have these two characters that become mirror images of each other. Max was not successful. You know, I want to stop you there. I think, though, it's true to life because I feel like going back to sports movies, how many times have you seen a movie with a male protagonist where a pivotal moment is when they come in and they say, I'm the guy for the job. You need me. I'm going to turn everything around. And then it's like they are all of a sudden riding the corporate ladder high or they're the one who's getting the no hitter game. They're the one who's making it successful. I think Max is trying to mimic the ways that a lot of men communicate trying to go in there. But I see what you mean about it. It doesn't work. Absolutely. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the gender problem that exists in our society is that a female who behaves in the way a male does, it doesn't work. We see that in professional settings. We see it in all sorts of settings. There are certain behaviors that are allowed for men and not allowed for women. Women are, in essence, not allowed to be confident. How dare you say that you're a good pitcher? But a man shows up and says, I'm a good pitcher. It's like, well, okay, show me. Yeah. I think Max a lot does what we all wish we could do inside sometimes, even though you're right, it comes off at times as sort of clunky. You see her stumble, not get ahead. But I think that's cool to see somebody who's just like, I'm going to jump in there and shoot my shot. Even if I'm going to fail, I know that I'm good. And I'm going to put myself out there on it. And you do that in your personal life too, right? (laughs) I'm more of a Clance. I am more of a Clance who shows up and my hair is a mess. And I'm trying to make it all work. But what I really like about Clance and is something that I aspire to in my life is when we get right before the party is happening and Clance's hair, she looks in the mirror Literally every scene of Clance, her hair gets crazier, and I love that. That (laughs) is a thing in movies and TV that I love. Yeah, but you know, part of how she's able to pull it together, to live up to all these things that you mentioned, all these images in her life of being a woman, is that she has a strong team around her. It's not the baseball team that we see with Carson, but with Clance, she has her best friend. She has her spouse. She has people in her life who want her to succeed. And when she is in a moment where she stumbled, those people help lift her up and pull it together. And it's just something that I really aspire to. And I really hope to have in my own life. And I think is important for a lot of us that sometimes you can't do things alone. And again, even maybe this is somewhat of that parallel to a sports team. You can't do it alone. You can't always be the superstar by yourself. You need to have people around you whom you trust and who you can rely on to help lift you up when you have a moment when you're not at your best. Something that I love, a scene that I love in that episode that ties into what you're saying is they've tried to get the crabs, the grocer refused to turn around and acknowledge their existence, and Clance is like, we got to get out of here because they might be allowed to be in that store by law, 
but it is a scary, scary place for them. And Clance would rather live to fight another day than fight for those crabs. And Max is like, I'm getting your crabs. For me, that's so powerful. And I love Max in that moment because Clance has already shown she will be there for Max. They went to the tryouts together. She has Max's back. And Max in this moment is like, I can do this for you. I'm brave. I will risk whatever is waiting on the other side to try and get you those crabs. See, what would you do? Because I think that you have more of that Max personality. And that's something I really admire about you, that you put yourself out there and take chances and do things, even when people might say, why are you doing that? Do you think you're more of a Max or a Clance? Oh, God. (laughs) My girlfriend would tell you I'm a Clance in that situation. (laughs) But to not duck that question, but the other thing that I do think we need to talk about in that moment is the idea of Max is there and she's standing at the counter and Shirley and Carson are there. And a show or a movie 10 years ago would have had Carson help Max. And it would have been the white woman savior story where Carson Mm -hmm. comes to Max's rescue and, oh, look how helpful she is and how Max is grateful because she got the crabs. And they didn't do that. And we know that this is intentional. We know it's written intentionally so that Max retains her agency. Carson doesn't do it for Max in the sense of walking up and ordering the crabs for her, but she helps her. It's still collaborative. And I think that also is a wonderful writing moment. To get back to your question, we don't know what the danger would have been other than being ignored. Was the concern that the shopkeeper would throw a punch or call the cops? I don't know. So I guess the calculation to go and try and confront him or not really depends on what the consequences are. I think the risk would be knowing that people are going to stare at you and you could potentially be accused of making a scene. But no, my question to you was, do you think you're more of a Max or a Clance? Yeah. And my answer was sometimes I'm a Max, sometimes I'm a Clance, Emma. Okay, that's good. What about, are you more of a Greta or a Carson? Oh, girl. (laughs) I know the answer. I know the answer. I'm a Carson. Also, since listeners can't see your hair, I'm seeing you're rocking the red. Are you trying to channel some Greta now? Maybe next episode, I will dress up. I'll do my best Greta. I like it. Yeah, it's true. I did just dye my hair red. Perhaps this is kind of sinking into my mind. I know. And then the episode after that, you're dressed like Lupe. I don't know. I want us to go to the lightning round because you gave me the lightning round last time. So I want to hit you with the lightning round this time. So let's go. Three questions. Rapid fire. What was your favorite moment of the episode? I'm going to go back to it was Clance getting that help from Max and from Guy and Clance letting herself have the humility to know that she needed help because I didn't see it as her being pathetic or anything. I didn't see it as reflecting poorly on her. I saw it as Clance understands when she has done everything she can and she needs those people to come in, the people who love her and help her. And then seeing the party go off successfully, that felt like such a warm moment to me. So what about you? Favorite moment in the episode? You know what? I love the entirety of the hunt for the crabs. Yeah. Again, I'm a fan of slapstick. I'm a fan of them running around. I'm loving when they're sitting in the wake and like, where are my crabs? Where are my crabs? And Clance going in and discovering her crabs. For me, that's my favorite. But a follow-up scene, because you know what? We haven't talked about Gretzen yet in this episode. And I think something that's really important is When writers are developing chemistry between characters, you have to have a moment where there's some sort of shared emotional intimacy. You string them together like beads on a necklace. And so this is the first time 
Yeah, okay. When Greta cuts Carson's hair, it kind of is a little bit of intimacy, and then they drink, and it's hilarity. But this is a serious moment. Greta is crying, and Carson is trying to be supportive. And so we have this start of a connection there that's not just Greta pulls Carson into a back room and makes out with her, but the start of an actual relationship. Let me add, I think also when they're having the makeover scenes and Greta kind of shushes Carson to say, we need to take this seriously. I mean, it's very revealing about Greta. It's a subtle moment. It's revealing about Greta and her need to please the people who are in power because she understands that's how you play the game. But I think also it shows how she and Carson are building that connection for we're going to be on this team together and we need to help lead and guide people on this team. And Carson at first doesn't take it seriously. But then when she sees what Greta is doing and why it's important, I think that too shows a different level of respect than last episode when it was more of the sort of the romance and the intimacy. Absolutely. Okay, hit me with another question. So, favorite joke of the episode? This was a really quiet one that I thought was hilarious, but when Max is talking to Gary about the baseball team, she makes a comment to him. She's talking about baseball. He's like, is the only thing you talk about this baseball stuff? And she says something about if we only played for the same team. I just thought that was a cute little, like, we don't know. I mean, we do know, but I think at this point, we're not totally sure about where Max falls in terms of could she give Gary a chance. But as we see things going on, Max and Gary, they certainly are not playing for the same team in terms of a potential romantic relationship between them ever. Am I dense? Because until she started making out with the pastor's wife at the end of the episode, I didn't see it coming. I thought she was just a sports obsessed straight girl. So, okay. It was at the end of this episode where we see that vignette. Yeah. What do you think of that? Because I personally loved it. I thought it was great. It's tropey, but it feels right of like she's making out with the pastor's wife. Okay. I have to admit for me, I felt it was too stereotypical, too tropey. Presumably it could have been anyone in the town and to do the pastor's wife. I just, I felt like it was too easy for me. And I can't even describe that, but just feeling like, and I don't want to speak for the Black community, but as a white person watching Black stories, I feel like there's frequently a pastor involved, a pastor and his wife. And so it's like, well, you know, there's other people in the community too. Other people must feel left out. (laughs) You don't have to marry a pastor just to be someone's love interest. There are a lot of other people she could have been making out with, but I thought it was cute, even though it ends up being a pretty short arc. But let me ask you, so what was your favorite joke? Okay, so this one, I actually only even realized it was happening because I happened to put subtitles on. Clance, she's at the wake. She opens the steaming pot, sees her crabs, starts to wail and cry because she realizes she's never going to get those crabs back and dinner's ruined and whatnot. And someone from the wake comes in and starts to comfort her because she thinks that Clance is mourning the death of this stranger. And so she's hugging her. And if you have your subtitles on, what Clance says is, fuck Mrs. Beaufort. Because she's so upset (laughs) over the fact that her crabs have been taken to honor this dead lady she's never met. I didn't catch that. I did not catch that. And I had my subtitles on. I guess I wasn't watching it. It was so funny to me because obviously the woman that's hugging her doesn't hear it either. And so we as the listener or the, the viewer are kind of let into this secret. Final question. What is your biggest pet peeve in this episode? 
a pet peeve being something that is a little bit annoying, not something that ruined it, but just something a little bit sort of taking me out of things was probably the CGI baseballs. You never see the person throwing the ball. I felt like they could have used just a ball machine or have some pitcher off the scene throwing it. It wasn't a huge distraction, but when I had been reading some of the online commentary, a lot of people found it annoying or a little bit disorienting. And when I rewatched the show and I noticed that, I thought, yeah, it didn't feel like it needed to be there. And I noticed that those balls tended to go straight down center. And if you were in an actual baseball game where that ball hits, the catcher would be moving their glove around because the pitcher wouldn't always be going dead center. They're trying to trick the batter into swinging at something. Yeah. And I just didn't think it was really as needed. I mean, I I don't know. I'm not an expert in what sort of alternatives they could have used. But yeah, once I noticed the CGI, it just felt like it didn't quite fit. So what about you? What was the pet peeve that you had? A pet peeve that I have for period pieces is really shiny cars. There's got to be a whole industry where in Hollywood or wherever they have these classic cars that they maintain for the express purpose of being used in movies. There's actually a very large classic car market, so it's not just for Hollywood. And people keep these cars immaculate because they have value. These are collector items. Oh, they do. I have a lot of Hot Wheels cars. People keep those immaculate. People are super into their tiny, tiny cars that you buy for $1.50. So when it comes to real cars, yeah, people like to keep that stuff in pristine condition. Right. So we understand that if someone's going to lend their car or rent their car out to be in a movie or a TV show, they want it to be kept nice. But the problem is, in that time period, would that vehicle have been absolutely spotless? I don't think so. You can't be out there polishing your car every day. So a little bit of mud, a little bit of grime. No, maybe you are. You don't have an Xbox. You don't have a big screen TV that you're watching. Maybe your pastime is just polishing your car, making it look nice. I don't know. I mean, certainly they're indicators of wealth, but is it too much to ask for like a dirty car from the 1920s or 40s? Yeah, I'm sure some people's cars were dirty. Also, with the cars being so big, you know that somebody backed into a lamppost or scratched it on something. Rust. I just spray some fake dust on them and I'll be happy. That's my pet peeve. So Emma, overall thoughts for the episode? Overall, I thought this was a really good episode. I loved the Max Clant story. I loved getting to know Greta and Carson more. And like you said, getting to see their relationship develop that's not just the sparks, not just the love at first sight, but seeing that they have some sort of connection brewing that's a little bit deeper. I still would have loved to have had more time spent on other characters. Personally, I felt like the makeover scene was a little bit longer than it needed to be. I know that it's sort of turning a typical scene on its head that you see in movies a lot where it's, oh, somebody's getting a makeover and they love it. But I would have preferred having that time devoted to finding out more about like Joe and Greta's relationship and background. What have they been doing? Seeing some of the other characters on the peaches. I'm really looking forward to talking about that in future episodes because I think there's so much good acting. There's so many good characters in this show that I really want them all to have more time. And I know it's hard to do that. But I'm glad that the stories that they explored this episode were good and felt like they moved things along. So what about you? What were your final thoughts? For me, this was very much a building block episode. 
What that means is it's not the episode where Greta and Carson kiss. It's not the episode where Max finally makes a team. It's the episode where we start to lay the groundwork for future episodes. The Peaches play their first game. Max learns how she could maybe get onto a team. Greta and Carson talk in a way that, as I said, builds that emotional intimacy. So I think it's a good building block episode when you're writing something like this. It can be hard to keep people focused and engaged and not lose them. And I think it did a good job by bringing in these humorous montages, chasing after crabs or going through beauty school as a way to keep people engaged. The writing was so funny. I just need to say again, the writing was really funny. Carson and her farmhands. <laughs> I think it's a good episode. I think upcoming episodes, there's just so much to be excited about, even more than in this episode. But I really think this one did a fantastic job of showing what it was like to be Black in white spaces, showing what it was like to be a woman in a male-dominated space where you're expected to be a certain way. And I think it absolutely makes us think hard about these things in modernity, both looking backwards, but then looking at ourselves as well. So Emma, as we sign off, I think we have a new social media account, don't we? We do. So people can find us at P-A-T-O-F podcast on Twitter and now also on Instagram. So please come check us out. Listen to us wherever podcasts are downloaded, but also Go interact with us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be expanding to other social media sometime in the future. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And we will talk to you next time.